Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, October the 6th. And today we're going to continue our broadcast, our podcast, our video cast about one of my favorite subjects, and that is the experience of growing up uh, Cuban or Cuban-American uh, in the United States. Uh, with us today is a good friend of our show, Jorge Ponce, who will be joining us in a second. Jorge uh, just wrote a book about his experience examining the past to understanding the present. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book about his uh, trajectory, if I could put it that way, here in the United States. And, you know, Jorge and I are of the same generation. Uh, I came to the United States in 64, ended up in Wisconsin. He came in 66, ended up in Virginia. But, you know, that path of growing up in a, in a family headed by Cuban parents is one that we both share, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that we both did growing up that were quite similar. So, Jorge, welcome. It's a great honor to have you. Thank you, uh, Silvio. It's, uh, glad, I'm glad to be back uh, uh, doing this interview with you. Thank you so much. It's great, uh, it's great to have you. You know, I mentioned uh, in my presentation that I love uh, these are actually my favorite interviews. Uh, I, obviously, we talk politics and other things on, on the podcast, but these are my favorite interviews because when I'm talking to somebody like you, I feel like I kind of know a lot more about you than I would a regular guest. And that's because, of course, of our Cuban-American uh, background. But you came to the U.S., did I say that correctly? You came in 66, right? Uh, I came in 1966 through the uh, Freedom Flights. Right. And you must have been, Jorge, let me ask you a quick question. You must have been, the Freedom Flights started in 65. So you, you were among the, maybe in the first couple of years. I'm, I'm just curious, uh, when, when you flew on that plane and you were in that Freedom Flight, just walk us a little bit through the process on the other side when you got to Miami. Just tell us because I had never actually spoken to anybody before who was in one of those freedom flights. So when you got to Miami, you landed, you went through the airport. What was that like? Just share that with us for a second. Well, just uh, let me give you a few minutes before I got on the plane in Varadero uh, Beach. Uh, the, uh, the, the communist guards treated my family to a sumptuous uh, lunch with Cuban sandwiches and in my main uh, shake. And I was so surprised because uh, we had not seen, uh, you know, such camaraderie uh, in, in a very long time. So I asked the guard, you know, what was the occasion? And the guard responded, well, now that you're leaving Cuba, we just wanted you to take a good memory of what Cuba was like. Well, I haven't heard too many stories like that. So you must have been, uh, that must have been a real exceptional day because I've heard other stories, like in my own case, where they weren't very nice to us, but uh, I'm glad they were nice to you. That's for sure. And, uh, and then we got the, uh, the green light to board the plane. And uh, as we're boarding uh, the, uh, the ramp, Right before entering the plane, there were some uh, communist uh, uh, security guards that stopped my family and demanded to see my passport. 
And they told my father, you know, if your son uh, happens to be in a military age bracket, he's going to have to stay in Cuba. He will not be able to leave uh, to the United States. So this was part of the psychological, uh, uh, you know, just warfare that the communist government subjected those those Cuban Americans leaving for the United States. And of course, I was 11, so there was no big deal, thank God. But once we were on the plane, you know, everyone was very quiet as long as we were flying over Cuban territory. The minute they announced uh, over the, uh, the PA system that we had entered international space, all hell broke loose, you know, the uh, Viva Cuba Libre, and they sang the Cuban national anthem. And, uh, and then we landed uh, in uh, Miami, and we had uh, a, a contingent of cousins and friends waiting for us. And uh, we were glad to be on free soil, uh, uh, finally. Right. No, that's a great story. I, I uh, had a little slightly different experience when we left, but I'm glad that, uh, that, you, that you related that. That's just a great, uh, a great story. Now, when I wrote my book, and this is over uh, 10 years ago, and others uh, that I've spoken to who've written books like you, my uh, my reasoning for writing the book was very simple. I just wanted to pass on something on to my sons and my grandsons. I, I have three now, so it's uh, uh, that's even more more justified. And I'm wondering why did you write the book? What was your inspiration for putting all of this down and adding this to the the many many books that have been written about our generation, Jorge? Well, I'm going to take a cue, Sylvia, from the last uh, presidential debate that uh, some of the candidates says, well, before I answer the question, let me uh, just say a few things first, and then I'll get to your question. First of all, I want to thank you profusely for giving me this opportunity to market my book, because I get so unnerved by the fact that... Uh, a lot of uh, conservatives are talking about the recent exodus of Hispanics from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party, but they never allow his, a Hispanic to tell his or her own story. So we hear about it from non-Hispanic sources. And, uh, you know, uh, it is precisely when, when that happens uh, when you have, in, in, you know, non-Hispanics or non-Cuban Americans telling the, the reasons why, why I get uh, questions like uh, when I tell them that I'm Cuban American, you know, the first question that I get asked is, have you been back? Uh, well, you know, if, if you know a little bit about a Cuban American, you know that that's not a question that you should ask a Cuban American because if our families left a gulag, why would we want to go back to that gulag archipelago? So thank you again, uh, Silvio. I really appreciate it uh, for giving me this opportunity. Now, to your question, what inspired me to write uh, the book? 
the first inspiration was from the late Charles Krauthammer, uh, who wrote a book that was called Things That Matter. And this was a compilation of uh, all the article, uh, most of the articles that he had written. Uh, and I thought it was a wonderful idea because people uh, lead very busy lives. And the fact that you have a compilation of articles, you know, you can pick up the book and, and read two or three articles and put it away and pick it up the couple days later and, uh, you know, start all over without losing the, uh, the, the train of thought. Uh, but the difference is that Charles was a public figure. He was a, a regular uh, guest on some of the Fox uh, channels, whereas I am not a public figure. So I use the, uh, the, the, uh, the prototype of Charles' uh, book, but I had to write my own, uh, my own life story so that people could see who the heck was this guy who wrote all these articles. So Charles was the first inspiration. The other one that resonates deeply with me as a Cuban-American, and I'm sure with you when you wrote yours, was a Cuban national hero, Jose Marti, who said that there are three things that a man should do in his lifetime. The first one is plant a tree. The second one is, uh, uh, let's see, plant a tree. Uh, let me uh, have a son, plant a tree, have a son, and write a book. I guess I'm two out of three on that one. Yeah, I'm so two I, out of three. I don't remember planting a tree, but I'm an <laughs> old man, so I may have done it sometime, but I don't remember. I do two out of those three I got. Anyway, so, sorry to interrupt you. So I've planted uh, plenty of trees uh, since I moved to uh, uh, to Florida. Uh, I do have a son, and uh, and now finally uh, I wrote uh, the book. The final inspiration, believe it or not, was a quote from the late Cuban dictator Fidel Castro who in one of his 1961 speeches to uh, the writers and intellectuals, he said something like this, with the revolution, everything. Without the revolution, nothing. And it's a quote that is very similar to one that the, uh, the fascist leader Benito Mussolini uh, gave. And it served as an inspiration because when I, uh, when I read about Castro's quote, it reminded me very much about what the cancel culture is about. You know, they, they, they have this mindset that it's uh, my way or the highway, and they never give others who disagree with them an opportunity to air their opinions. You know, you're so right about that. And I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned that because, uh, you know, my parents passed away. My, my dad passed away in 2015. My mother passed away in 2021. My mother saw a little bit of the cancel culture. My dad didn't get to see as much. And whenever I see that, exactly what you're talking about, I'm reminded of Cuba and the excesses of Cuba. And when I see, you know, we're going to shut you down. We don't care what you think. It's our way or the highway. Uh, 
or you're with us or you're not with us type of thinking, it always uh, reminds me of Cuba. And I, and I, and I, I you know, it, I just keep telling people, hey, this is not going to end well. If you subscribe to this, this is not going to end uh, well for you and for whatever you're promoting. And of course, there's also the, the example of Mao in China and their cultural revolution in the 60s that uh, created all kinds of problems. So I'm, I'm really happy that you brought up that point because we Cubans, we need to talk more about that because we have personal experience with that kind of experience. You know, as my mother used to say, we've seen this movie before and it's not good. So yes, Jorge, sorry to interrupt you. So those were the, uh, the three uh, individuals who inspire me. All right. Now, I'm fascinated with uh, the, the current politics argument that you make about from Democrat to Republicans, Hispanics. So there's three, three issues that I wanted to ask you. Number one, why are Democrats or why are so many Hispanics Democrats? Certainly, that doesn't apply to a lot of us Cuban-Americans, because most of us are not. I know you may have been. Secondly, is there really a change going on right now from among Hispanics, from Democrats to Republicans? I think we see it in Texas. And number three, why did you change? So, I mean, that's three questions, I guess, three big questions. If you could just tackle that uh, for me. Why did you change? Is our Hispanics changing? And uh, why are Hispanic Democrats? So why don't we start with that one? Okay, so uh, the first question is why did why did I change uh, from a Democrat to a Republican? And the, the first uh, answer to that question is that uh, I did not change as much as the party left me. And Sylvia, you know, I, uh, when I was a uh, Democrat, uh, and, and let me just say that I was a Democrat uh, at a time uh, when my family was entirely uh, Republican. So I was an anomaly within the Cuban-American uh, uh, clan. Uh, and the reason why I was a Democrat is primarily because I thought that I owe a debt of gratitude to President Johnson, uh, who was a Democrat, because I came to the United States through the freedom flights. Uh, I also am a person who has always been a fiscal conservative or one who looks up to uh, the underdogs. So I, uh, I always have looked uh, to uh, the human rights uh, champions in Cuba, like Fariñas, uh, uh, like Paya, uh, like Berta Soler from the Ladies in White, uh, because they were considered to be, if you look at it from the Marxist dialectics, they were the oppressed. They were the oppressed that the Cuban government has uh, made life very difficult for 64 years. And yet, 
you know, you're talking about my transformation, you know, when you look at uh, groups like Black Lives Matter, they side with a communist government. They side with the oppressor, not the oppressed. So uh, I, was a, I was a Democrat. Like I said, I was uh, always looking out for the underdog because as a Cuban-American refugee, I was also an underdog in American society who had to start over from scratch to become a successful member of society. But then something, you know, I started analyzing the Democratic Party and it was just a progression, a progression of things. The first one that made me think twice about being a Democrat was uh, the reason why my parents were Republicans. And that was the the betrayal of uh, the Cuban-American aspirations during the Bay of Pigs in 1961, when uh, President John F. Kennedy was at the Oval Office. That was to use, I know that you're a baseball fanatic, so I'll use a baseball analogy. That was strike one. Right. And that's, by the way, if I may say so, that that was my, our association with the Republican Party, also on my family, that is, came from that. That was the first one, the Bay of Pigs. You're, you're hitting it. I think we have a similar upbringing in that respect, because that was the, the one issue that really turned uh, our parents, or at least my parents, into, into devout Republicans. It was that issue. It was completely that issue, just like you indicated. So go on. So strike... Two was when Bill Clinton sent Elian Gonzalez back to Cuba when his mother had perished in the Florida Straits because she wanted to take Elian into the land of freedom. That's what Elian's mother wanted for Elian. And Clinton sent him back. And there are some friends who have asked me, we have forgotten about Elian. What is Elian like nowadays? Well, Elian nowadays is a Cuban Communist Party uh, loyal member that spews all this Marxist propaganda. The, the, uh, the Cuban uh, Communist Party members have fried his brain. Right. And if I may jump in for a second, I just want to say something because that way uh, I can get him in and, and won't forget at the end. Uh, Elian, I remember that experience. Of course, by the time Elian happened, uh, the Democrats already had too many strikes with our family. But 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 I will say that the sad thing about Elian is that he became exactly what his mother was hoping that he would never become. His mother, who died in the ocean, getting him here. Uh, this was the last thing she wanted. I mean, that's why she left. That's why she was willing to risk everything for him. So you're right. That is a sad thing. Uh, and that young man right now has been has become a propaganda tool, really, for the dictatorship. That's what he became, just a propaganda tool. But I have to think that his mother up in heaven looking down has to cry every time she sees her son uh, saying things that she was hoping he would never say for him. And then finally, 
strike three and you're out. That's when I had enough and I made the switch. It happened in December of 2014 when President Barack Obama uh, opened up to the Cuban government and agreed to reestablish the U.S. Embassy in Havana without requiring the Cuban government to give concessions for human rights activists and, and, and to improve the human rights conditions in Cuba. That's when I said, that's enough. That's right. And that was a shameful moment for President Obama because you're exactly right. He, had, he could have used some leverage and he didn't use it. He basically gave away the house without demanding anything whatsoever from a dictatorship, uh, bankrupt, and uh, he could have done something, and he didn't. I was very angry, too, about that. I was even angrier, of course, when they formally opened the embassy, because I remember that embassy as a little boy. I remember driving by there, or taking the bus, actually, with my parents and seeing that embassy there right in front of, of Malikon. But can I go back to Charles Crodhammer for a second, because you brought him up, and I just wanted to see if you remember... Broadhammer saying this. Somebody asked him one time why he became a, why he left the Democrat Party. And I don't know if you remember this, but they asked him, why did you leave the Democrat Party? And he said something similar to what you said. Well, they kind of left me because I, I looked at the data objectively and I could tell that the Democrat Party was on the wrong side. Now, he was talking back in the late 80s when he said that during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, and he was focusing a lot on national security when he said that, not so much uh, the economy, but that's why he became a conservative. Uh, he kind of said, I've always been a conservative, but now I'm confirming it. So I think in your case, maybe it's the same thing, Jorge. Yeah, and you know, Charles, uh, uh, one of the big things for Charles, he was always a very strong supporter of Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, as time went by and as, as we had different administrations in the Oval Office, it was the, uh, the Republican uh, presidents who had the best uh, programs uh, to support the state of Israel. And, you know, if Charles had been around, oh, there is no question that uh, where Charles would have stood. He would have stood with uh, the Republicans uh, all the way. No, there's no question about that, certainly on on foreign policy, he was uh, clearly, he was very disappointed with his original party, uh, the Democrats. Now let's bring this a little bit to 2024, 2023, where we are now. There is, there's a lot of talk about Hispanics moving to the Republican party. We saw a little bit of that in 2020 in South Texas. In fact, we saw a lot of that. And then in 2022, there were some, and now we're headed to 2024. Do you believe that uh, that you will see this movement grow? Uh, Hispanics moving to the Republican Party, not necessarily because of President Trump or not President Trump, but just because they feel that they share uh, the Republican Party shares some of their values when it comes to family structure, when it comes to, for example, fighting crime. I mean, some of these Hispanics who live in large cities, I mean, look at Washington, D.C. I mean, it's a mess. So uh, do you think that this is actually going to happen or that this tendency will continue to grow? 
It will definitely continue to grow within the Hispanic community and within the African-American community. I mean, I have to tip my hat to the Dallas community for having its mayor, Eric Johnson, switch parties from them being a Democrat to a Republican. That just happened last week. Right. It's just in the months of September. And of course, not to jump in, but but just to explain to someone who may not be familiar with what you're saying, he had been a, a Democrat all his life. And uh, as mayor of Dallas, he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal saying, I'm switching parties and these are the reasons. And the reasons that he's switching party is because he doesn't feel that the Democrat Party is helping out the African-American populations by promoting the policies that they promote. And, and we can see it for ourselves, what's happening in some of these cities, the devastation, the crime. Uh, another thing, too, and, and uh, I don't know if you have given some thought to this, but I have, the devastation of the black family, you know, the, the, the fatherlessness that there is in the black community is one of the biggest problems they have. And if you listen to a lot of black preachers, they talk about this, but the black Democrats don't. It's like they've overlooked this issue, which I think it's a very important issue uh, in the in the African-American community. Absolutely. You know, if um, if there's one thing, Silvio, that is dear to Hispanics, uh, it is the family. You know, as a Cuban-American refugee, when we came to the United States, the Cuban government uh, confiscated uh, the properties that we had in Cuba. We had to turn over, or my parents had to turn over their bank accounts. Uh, and as punishment for coming to the United States, they would not allow my family to bring a penny to the United States. And so we came to the U.S. This is why I was so grateful to President Johnson and and the Freedom Flights. Uh, Yeah, we were given a small allowance just to get started. And then as soon as my parents uh, landed jobs, then, uh, you know, that allowance uh, went away. But at least we got a a little help and we started out. But the, the only way that that we thought that we could survive in a country where we did not speak the English language, where we were exposed to a different culture, was to come together as a nuclear family. That's what made us very, very successful. And so the attack by today's uh, Democrats Uh, which there's no doubt in my mind that they are following the Marxist uh, uh, model, is to destroy the family. To, uh, For example, when you send your kids to school to have the teachers uh, teach them uh, gender ideology when they are in kindergarten to sixth grade, without letting the, uh, the parents know what the kids are being taught. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the Hispanic uh, parents are not going to react in a positive manner, and they're going to uh, find help by coming to the Republican Party. So that's number one, the nuclear family. The other one, 
you have one of the uh, uh, the uh, the great uh, civil rights champions from uh, Texas, Barbara Jordan, uh, who uh, made some remarks uh, uh, in the past where she said, you know, it makes no sense whatsoever to bring in immigrants to this country uh, that are going to compete with Americans who are not highly educated because they're going to take their, their jobs from the American uh, uh, employees at a lower wage. So that was Barbara jo uh, Jordan, uh, Cesar Chavez uh, that Obama made uh, quite famous by the Si Se Puede, Yes, We Can. Cesar Chavez uh, was a union organizer for the, uh, the grape uh, pickers. Uh, and of course, he was against illegal immigration for the same reason as Barbara Jordan articulated. You bring in illegal immigrants, they're going to lower the wages and take the jobs from Hispanics uh, who are here in the United States on a legal basis. Mm -hmm. So illegal immigration is uh, another concern. The other one uh, well, another uh, big one is that they they want to feel safe in their community. So this defund the police uh, is uh, is not something that is very well received uh, by Hispanics. Uh, they don't agree with uh, uh, abusing and 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 calling bad names and and pejoratives to to law enforcement personnel. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we first came to the United States, uh, we brought with us stories of the failure of the communist uh, policies in Cuba. The fact that the communists ruined what was once a prosperous country and turned it into a gulag. And, uh, but the thing is that because we were recent arrivals in the United States, there were not many Americans who wanted to pay attention to what we were telling them. Right. Well, nowadays, all they have to do is look at what the socialist uh, policies like sanctuary cities, defund the police, uh, the district attorneys who let uh, criminals uh, out on the street. All they have to do is look at uh, uh, the Democrat-controlled Democrat cities like Chicago, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, just to get a glimpse what socialist policies will bring about. That's right. No, you're exactly right. And, and in fact, uh, that's exactly why the mayor uh, of Dallas, Eric Johnson, that those were the, uh, what, uh, the reasons you enumerated were very much a part of the article that he wrote, that the policies were not helping uh, the groups that they they thought were helping, but I, I agree with you 100. percent I I do think the tendency is for Hispanics to move in our direction, and I think they will. Now I'll just share with you another small example that maybe applies to Texas only. But in the south, in the South Texas area, we have a lot of refineries. We have a lot of Hispanics in South Texas, most of them Mexican Americans who drive these uh, oil trucks, who work at these refineries. So when they're hearing a Democrat party uh, promote a green agenda that attacks fossil fuels, 
they look at that and they go, that's not going to work for me because you're destroying my livelihood, my profession, my community. This is not to say that there aren't some areas of climate change that we should be serious about, but destroying industries in the name of of green of a green plan is not a very sensible idea. Jorge, we're just about out of time, and and hopefully we we had a chance to to cover uh, the material. But is there is there anything else that uh, I didn't ask you? Anything else you wanted to say here at the at the very end that uh, somehow we we got into the topic? I think we're gonna have to do it again, do another chapter of this. But we got into it. And uh, I hope that uh, you were able to share what you wanted to share. So take a couple of minutes and and uh, say something that maybe you didn't have a chance to say, Jorge. A couple of things. Uh, talking about Hispanics coming to the Republican side. You know, the, the Democrats have a tendency to say that the Republicans uh, is a party that benefits the billionaires and the millionaires. Well, if you look at what the Democrats have done, they have offshore most of the jobs in the manufacturing sectors to China. And so, uh, you know, even though they say Republicans are favoring the billionaires, it was precisely the billionaires who, uh, who got richer when we had the COVID uh, pandemic. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a lie. So that's, uh, that's a lie that the Democrats uh, are spewing and no one believes them. The Democrats also claim that uh, they are the party that looks after Hispanics, but Hispanics call their bluff when they see, for example, First Lady uh, Jill Biden make a speech where she refers to Hispanics as breakfast uh, tacos. And just the other day, during uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, which we are still celebrating, right. President Biden gave a speech at the uh, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and he, say, and, and he made a mistake as if he were addressing the Congressional Black Caucus. So, nah, you know, this whole thing that they, uh, the Democrats look after Hispanic is just a bluff. They don't care that much about Hispanics. All they care about is their vote. Well, that's it. You're exactly right about it. No, you're, you're right on. I, I agree with you 100%. I think you know, we've been saying this for a while, but I think the message is finally getting out. I mean, I remember many times being on Univision or Telemundo here in Dallas and saying that over the years that uh, the Democrat Party is not really interested in fixing, for example, the immigration issue. They just want the topic. And uh, I think over the last couple of days, they've proven us right when you now have President Biden reversing his position on the border wall and uh, apparently talking about deport de deporting uh, some Venezuelans. Well, Jorge, I want to, do you have a copy of your book with you that you could yeah, uh, show us? Uh, yeah, here's the uh, copy of the, uh, of the right. book. All right. See, and uh, the book is, uh, I saw it was available on Amazon, right? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. It is uh, available on hard copy, paperback, and Kindle. You Great. can get it on the Amazon portal. You can get it on Barnes and Nobles. You can get it on Thrift Books. It's available on multiple uh, portals. 
and so you got you you did all your homework correctly it looks like you got uh, you're completely uh, prepared for the marketing end of it and that's that's very important but first of all thank you for joining me that's the first thing thank you for reconnecting with me and number two the best of success with your book i know it's going to be a very successful book and uh, now we just have an excuse to do this again so maybe uh, you know every so often we can chat a little politics because I think your point of view about the elections and the politics is one that I enjoy hearing. I enjoy you know reading your your messages and your materials that you write. So uh, let's do this again. Let's uh, stay in touch and and do another one about politics sometime down the road, Jorge. Thank you, uh, Silvio, and it will be an honor to do another podcast. All right. Thank you so much. Our good. Thank you so much. Enjoy the, the afternoon. Now, you're not a baseball fan, right? I used to be, but used I just, uh, you know, so many hobbies, writing the book, uh, and, and not just writing the book, but I say that when you retire, you have to have a hobby, and my hobby is reading. Good. Oh, That's I, a good I, hobby. Now, I asked you about the baseball fan because the Rangers were in Tampa uh, this week and they eliminated Tampa and the, the Rays, that is the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, so we were pretty excited about that over here uh, in Texas. Hopefully, uh, you know, Tampa Rays are just a marvelous baseball team. They're a great baseball team. But I guess we caught them at the right time and we were able to, to eliminate them. Have a great weekend, uh, Jorge. My best to your family, and we will do it again. Thank you, uh, Silvio. Same to your family. Thank you so much. Uh, our good friend, uh, Jorge Ponce, uh, go back with him uh, a few years. We had done some, some podcasts before. Uh, remember that book about Jose Marti that was written several years ago? He was the one who introduced me to that book. So I always enjoy chatting with him and getting his... Uh, his point of view. But most of all, you know, I, these books about Cuban-Americans, these books that uh, explain what we did and how we came and the conversation that I had with Jorge about the Cuban family, how important that was. It's exactly right. Well, one of the reasons I think that the Cuban immigration was such a, a successful one is because of our parents who were very solid people and taught us all those values uh, many, many years ago. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye, everybody.